0: A lady was once asked if she had read the Bible right through. She smiled rather ruefully and then confessed, I tried it three times and each time I broke down at the book of Leviticus. Her confession has been the confession of many, but not always openly avowed. It's understandable because of the book of Leviticus is a rather complicated book at first appearance as it describes the services of the mystical tabernacle of the Jews. The tabernacle of the Jews was a symbol of the plan of redemption. It's been rightly said that it was a dramatised parable of God's dealings with man. A pictured history, the gospel in substance, salvation in epitome, A figure, yes, but more than a form. A shadow, yes, but not darkness. Rather, it was a reflection of the light of heaven. And to study it is to think God's thoughts after him. To understand its every detail is to fathom the depths of the riches of God's wisdom. We should become aware of the amount of space that is given to the subject of the Jewish tabernacle in the scriptures. While the story of creation is told in just one chapter of 800 words and the whole history of millenniums is comprehended in about five chapters, that is the distance of time from creation till the flood, yet to the subject of the Jewish tabernacle where yearly a passion play was enacted in the desert in those years before the entrance into Canaan, that subject has more space than any other single topic of scripture about half of the book of Exodus, all of the book of Leviticus, a large section of Numbers, sections of Kings and Chronicles and Ezekiel, and then most of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament is devoted to the subject of the sanctuary. This gives us some idea of its importance. It's important for you and for me, for it tells the way of forgiveness, of mercy, of grace, of power, of eternal life. Outwardly, it just looked like an old tent with two rooms surrounded by a courtyard. There are actually three main sections. The outer court, which was a large, oblong, rectangular structure, um, about 100 cubits by 50, that is, 150 feet by 75 feet. It had 60 pillars that were erected at intervals of five cubits, and attached to them were hangings of fine linen. Inside that courtyard was the sanctuary itself, composed of two apartments, the first one known as the Holy Place. It was twice the size of the second apartment, which was called the Most Holy. The walls of these two apartments consisted of wooden pillars in close contact. Then there were four large and beautiful curtains that covered the whole structure above, roofing it in and making it a dwelling. Remember, the centre of it all was the Holy of Holies. It was a cube. Ten cubits by ten cubits by ten cubits. and Thus a symbol of perfection. It was there that the Ark was, the symbol of the throne of God. What was the purpose of the tabernacle? We've already intimated. It was to be a parable of how God gets rid of sin. How God, the just and holy God, can forgive our sins. It was also a symbol of his visible dwelling. It was his first visible dwelling place on earth. He had walked with Adam and Eden. He'd spoken to the patriarchs. He'd visibly visited Abraham. But now with Israel, he came down to dwell after their redemption from Egypt. From henceforward, God had a dwelling on earth. After the tabernacle came the wonderful Temple of Solomon, the most famous architectural structure in the old world. And after the temple, there came the Son of God from the bosom of the Father. The New Testament says, the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. That's John one fourteen. Following the incarnation came the church, a spiritual house, a holy temple, builded for a habitation of God through the Spirit. We're told in Ephesians 2.21-22. That church which is the home of all who trust in the merits of Jesus Christ. This is God's present tabernacle, his dwelling place on earth, until the great consummation of the second advent. Concerning which it is written, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. That's right, throughout eternity. In the New Testament, there are two Greek words for temple. One means the entire arrangement, but the other is usually used for the holy of holies. And In the New Testament, when the temple of God is used for Christian believers, either collectively, the church, or individually, it's the second word, the word that's used for the holy of holies. Is used. Now, apart from the tabernacle being the visible dwelling place of God in the days of Israel's pilgrimage, we have emphasized that it was a parable of the plan of redemption. It contained a beautiful series of pictures of Jesus Christ the Savior. Take, for example, the furniture. There were seven carefully described articles of furniture. All of them were rich in typical significance. There was the altar of burnt offering. There was the laver, which was like a small, molten container of water for cleansing. There was the table of showbread. There was a candelabrum, a seven-fold candlestick. There was the altar of incense. The ark, a wooden box that contained the Ten Commandments. And over the ark, the mercy seat, which had the cherubim attached. And between these cherubim was the bright light of the Shekinah glory, the symbol of the very presence of God. Now, each of these articles told about Jesus Christ. The altar of burnt offering pointed to the cross. The labour represented how the cross has the power to wash us, not only from the guilt of sin, but from its defilement. The showbread table, Christ, the bread of life. Also on that table, there were libation offerings, because Christ is also the water of life. And then the candlestick, with its sevenfold branches, spoke of the perfection of him who is the light of the world. The altar of incense, as the people prayed outside, the incense arose. It represented the fragrance of the righteousness of Christ, which alone makes the prayers of guilty sinners acceptable to God. And then the ark, told of the heart of Jesus, for in his heart was the law of God. And the mercy seat, ah, that too represents our Lord Jesus. It is better known as the seat of propitiation, the place of sacrificial blood. God looked at the broken law through the blood-stained mercy seat. And so, each item of furniture really tells us about Jesus. This whole tabernacle sets forth the true pilgrim's progress. When one came to it and lifted the flap at the entrance of the court, he was immediately surrounded by white as he stepped inside. One can come to Jesus ever so quietly. But once he enters in, he's clothed in the whiteness of the righteousness of Christ. The first thing that the pilgrim saw was the altar of burnt offering, symbol of our justification. For Christ is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And at Calvary, your sin and mine was cancelled. And once we believe, once we receive, it is so for us experientially. And so the altar of burnt offering points to justification as soon as we come to christ we are counted just or righteous perfect accepted in him we're not yet perfect in ourselves but for christ's sake god counts as perfect justified means to be just as if i'd not sinned god counts us that way for christ's sake so that was the altar of burnt offering and then the labor that reminds us that in the pilgrim's progress of the christian There has to be a cleansing from the defilement of sin, not only its guilt. God gives his gifts with both hands. He doesn't justify any whom he does not proceed to sanctify. When we enter the first apartment and see the table of showbread, we're reminded that as pilgrims we need food to sustain us, and we must feed on Jesus, the bread of life. We must appropriate him, the water of life. And then, there also was the candlestick. We need to be led by the light of Christ, the truth of Christ. Not only do these, the showbread and the candles, represent Jesus, but they represent his word, which is still living, which gives light to every pilgrim. And then the altar of incense. We cannot be pilgrims without prayer. We cannot afford to pass a single conscious hour without speaking to our heavenly Father. And we need continually to remember that our prayers are acceptable only because of that incense the righteousness of Christ that makes the prayers of guilty men fragrant to God and then into the Most Holy and there the Ark to remind us that we need the law of God in our hearts. But duty is not enough so there was a mercy seat. God is love as well as righteousness. And we his children need not only to be just and true but we need to be loving, kind, merciful, forgiving. For if one word above another sums up what true religion's about, it's forgiveness. This alone can break the heart. This alone can energise the transgressor, the new habits and new ways. This alone best reflects the loving character of God towards his erring children. Then there was the Shekinah glory, which reminds us that in our pilgrim's progress, the ultimate is attained when the Holy Spirit pervades our very being guiding our thoughts and words and deeds to the glory of God. It's a promise, too, of glorification. when One day we'll be wholly transformed into the likeness of Jesus at the second coming of Christ. There's a remarkable parallel to this order of furniture in the tabernacle found in John's Gospel. For example, in chapter 1, we read twice, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. There we have the brazen altar. When we come to chapter 3, we read of the significance of the labor. For we are told, except a man is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Then in chapters 4 and 6, we read about Christ as the the living water and the bread of life. We go on further and come to chapters 8 and 9, where we have two references to Christ's statement, I am the light of the world, telling us of the candlestick of the ancient tabernacle. Said Jesus, he that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. The man born blind was given sight by the great light. Then in chapters 14 to 16, we have the wonderful discourses on prayer, praying in the name of Jesus, led by the Holy Spirit. Thus we stand at the golden altar of incense, offering prayers that become fragrant because we breathe that name which is so precious to all heaven. Then in 17, we're taken through the veil into the Holy of Holies, the famous high priestly prayer of Christ. Here we see Christ as our high priest interceding. We see him also as our ark and our mercy seat, the covenant basis of our acceptance with God. The following chapters tell us of his passion of Calvary, where our high priest is clad and then unclad. We read that after the cross, he left those old robes of his earthly life there in the sepulchre and rose in a glorified nature to be our representative above. And in the very final picture where our Lord speaks to the disciples before his ascension, he breathes upon them the Holy Spirit as if to give us the antitype of the Shekinah glory, God coming to indwell us. Well, let's think about the priesthood. We've looked at the furniture. We've looked at the purpose of this tabernacle and its shape. Let's think about the priesthood. It was nothing without that. Exodus 28 tells us that the high priest was arranged in in garments that were to be for glory and beauty. He was arrayed in fine linen. There were adornments of gold, flashing gems, purple and scarlet coverings. The ephod was a special outer garment for the high priest, a short garment from the shoulders down to the waist, joined together at the top by shoulder pieces. And on these shoulder pieces were two onyx stones set in sockets of gold and there were six tribal names on each stone. So the high priest bore on his shoulders, inscribed on the jewels the names of the tribes of Israel. I want particularly to refer you to Exodus 28 and verse 12, which tells us something else about the dress of the high priest. Let me read it to you. Exodus chapter 28 and verse 12. You shall set the two stones upon the shoulder pieces of the ephod, Stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord upon his two shoulders for remembrance. Notice there the stones we referred to are called the stones of remembrance. Christ, our high priest, always remembers us. And then the next piece of furniture, so to speak, that he wore on his brow. Listen, I'm reading verse 36 onwards. You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on the turban by a lace of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be upon Aaron's forehead. And Aaron shall take upon himself any guilt incurred in the holy offering, which the people of Israel hallow as their holy gifts. It shall always be upon his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. Here was a crown that the high priest wore, a mitre, and inscribed on it with the words, Holiness to the Lord. And did you notice? It said he wore it always that they, Israel, might be accepted before the Lord. And so my friend, we have a beautiful picture here of a high priest who had the names of Israel on his shoulders. He also had those names on the precious jewels of the ephod in four rows of three over his heart. And then finally on his head, the place of intelligence, the place of memory, this inscription, holiness to the Lord. In other words, here is a picture of a high priest bearing our burdens on his shoulders, our concerns on his heart, and representing us by his holiness that we might be accepted before the Lord. And so the high priest was a beautiful figure of Jesus who never forgets us, who is aware of every problem when he spoke about not one sparrow falling without God knowing. That's the Christ we worship. He's aware of every difficulty that brings a, a concern, a furrow to the brow, or a tear to the eye. He has our names on his heart, on his heart. He's willing to bear our burdens on his shoulders. Shouldn't we let him do that? There was one special day for the high priest, a day of a special passion play in the wilderness. This was the day of atonement. It was the high priest's day and yet it concerned all Israel. It was the chief type of the tabernacle. The special day of the year. It's discussed in Leviticus 16. It's considered by many people the most important chapter of the Old Testament. It was to solve the problem of the gap between the sinner and his God. You know, in Christ's day, The Jewish temple had a court for Gentiles far removed from the heart of the temple. Then there was a court for Jewish women who could get closer than the Gentiles. Then there was a court for the men. And later there came a court where the Levites could work. And then there was the first apartment where the priests, the ordinary priests could minister. But into that second apartment where there was the symbol of the throne of God, There only the high priest entered and only once a year and only with blood and only with incense and only for a little time. My friends, the purpose of the Day of Atonement was to show how this great gap between sinners and God could be bridged. How man could find access as a result of the forgiveness of sins. This Day of Atonement was a confession that all the offerings were really incomplete. It was a ceremonial proclamation that ceremonies do not avail to take away sin. It declared that the true end of worship is not reached till the worshipper has free access to the holy place of the Most High. Let me tell you what happened on the Day of Atonement. First, I'd like to remind you that this Christian word atonement occurs about 50 times in Leviticus, but about one third of that is found in in chapter 16. So it's the Day of the Atonement. It pointed forward to Calvary when Christ made an atonement for our sins. What happened on that day? The whole congregation were to gather in the courtyard. They were not allowed to to work. They fasted and prayed and mourned over their sins. The high priest, having offered offerings to cleanse himself and his house, brought two goats over which lots were cast. One was called the goat for the Lord and the other the goat for Azazel. This name Azazel has long been a puzzler to etymologists. Some think of it as meaning a goat for removal. Others say the name is a name for Satan. Certain it is that the desert into which the second goat was later sent was to Israel a place of evil spirits. And when at the end of the day they saw the second goat, the scapegoat, going into the desert, saw it dwindling into nothingness as it went further and further into the wilderness, Israel felt then that their sins had gone back to their source, the devil himself. But the devil had no part in the atonement. The first goat was the goat that was slain. After the sins of Israel had been confessed through the year, now the high priest slays this goat. And the blood was taken for the first time for the nation into the most holy place and sprinkled over the mercy seat. It was done very swiftly so there could be no coagulating of the blood. As soon as the animal was, blood was shed, the high priest hurried with it to sprinkle it on the mercy seat. Symbol of our Lord Jesus Christ after his death on Calvary, entering into the presence of God for us. Let me read to you what scripture says about this great day of atonement. I'm reading from Leviticus chapter 16. And it says in this chapter on verse 30, On this day shall an atonement be made for you, to cleanse you from all your sins. You shall be clean before the Lord. And so it was a day of cleansing. The people were cleansed. The sanctuary was cleansed. What did it all mean? Well, it pointed forward to Calvary. It pointed forward to the judgment of the world. Remember, according to Jesus in John 12:31, the cross was the judgment of the world it anticipated the last great judgment day when men's destiny will be decided by their attitude to the cross Daniel 9:24 and Daniel 8:14 they also tell us some of the implications of the antitypical day of atonement Daniel 9:24 talks about making an end of sin finishing the transgression making atonement for iniquity bringing in everlasting righteousness these all happen legally at the cross They happen ultimately with the last great judgment and the ushering in of a clean universe. Daniel 8.14 points to the same thing, the last judgment and a clean universe because of Christ's atonement on the cross. All Israel's eyes were on the high priest as he disappeared that day into the sanctuary. Their minds stayed on him. They prayed to God, hoping that their sins of the year would indeed be forgiven, that the ratification would be bestowed upon them for all the mercy received in the earlier days. They listened for the bells of his special garments, for when at the close of the day, the high priest reclothed himself, for at the beginning, he'd taken off his glorious robes. He'd officiated in the ordinary robe of a common priest. I want to touch briefly upon the characteristics of the priest that day. He was a humbled priest. It tells us there in the 16th chapter in the 4th verse that he took off his glorious robes. Does it remind you of Jesus whom they stripped when they put him on the cross? Secondly, he was a weary priest. The high priest had to stay awake all night before the day of atonement. And that's what happened to our high priest before the atonement on the cross. He went through those seven trials with Annas and Caiaphas and Pilate and Herod and Sanhedrin and so on. Thirdly, the priest was a sinless priest. He had to offer offerings for himself and his house so he might represent Jesus who had no sin. That's what makes him such a perfect representative for us. The priest had to be washed and clothed again and again in connection with the Day of Atonement ceremonies. And so Jesus was a pure high priest, but he was stripped and clothed and stripped and clothed during the atonement. The priest was a priest with incense and with blood And our Lord Jesus brought the incense of his perfect life. Many know that Jesus died for them, but they forget he lived for them. All his life is put to our account. Isn't that good news? Is your life good enough? Your life at home? At work? Your life as a father, a mother, a brother or a sister? My friend, Jesus lived for you. His life is put to your account. That's what the incense represented. The fragrance of his life. And then the blood is death. With these he went into the very presence of God, alone. He was an isolated high priest. Scripture tells us that when the Saviour would come to accomplish our redemption, of the people there would be none with him. He made the atonement. No disciple died when Christ died. He was a laborious high priest. He had to kill 15 beasts that day. Think of our Lord Jesus toiling in our redemption. It was an arduous work indeed that caused the blood to flow from every pore of his being as he contemplated it there in gethsemane it was a priest who parted the veil and now let me read to you from hebrews the ninth chapter which is the new testament section that explains the day of atonement here it says the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry but only the high priest entered the inner room and that only once a year and never without blood the holy spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. That's verses 6 to 8. Now please notice verse 12. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. My friends, the outer apartment represented the whole Levitical system. We're told that in Hebrews 9 and verses 8 and 9. But the second apartment represented the heaven of heavens, the dwelling place of God. That's why the cherubim were there, symbolic of the angelic host. That's where the blood of the atonement was taken. And it says here in verse 12, he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood. And then in chapter 10, notice the significance of it. Verses 19 and 20. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body. Since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. My friends, notice we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. We don't enter and come to God on virtue of our own behaviour, not on a base of our own character or achievements. None of these are good enough. We enter by the blood of Jesus, by faith in what he has done, my friends. That's the basis of salvation. You notice we go through the veil. Once a year, a representative of the the people went through the veil of the most holy place. And as he went in, the door, so to speak, was left open for the whole congregation in symbol to follow. That's what our Lord Jesus did on the cross. When he died, the veil was rent of the earthly temple. To illustrate that the barrier between man and God was gone. We now have free access to God because of what Christ has done. My friends, there's another important point with which we must conclude. Once in 50 years, the Day of Atonement ushered in the Jubilee. The Jubilee was the great year of rejoicing. All slavery came to an end. All property returned to its owners. And it was ushered in by the Atonement. What a day of rejoicing that was. My friends, do you know what jubilation is? Are you joyous and filled with joy? If you know the meaning of the atonement of Calvary, you can indeed have jubilation, but not otherwise. Christ and Christ only, my friends, can give us lasting joy and everlasting life. Receive it today. God bless you.